you've got some questions. Go to go! You're feeling stressed, man. Go to go! Put on your GPS and go to go! Under the dirt, something is glistening. Download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should go to go! Uh, I'll let you know right off the bat. So we recorded this a week ago, and then the file went to the bad place, and oh, we couldn't get it. It went so, to the upside down. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the OSU, the Beaver, upside down. Oh my god! Because I'm teaching. I don't know if it's because I'm teaching, but like at the beginning of the term, apparently my OSU Zoom account changed to where instead of um, saving my recorded episodes or recorded things, it transfers them to Kaltura, which is like this in canvas only, um, media thing, which is convenient when you're teaching, but I couldn't get it back out. <laughs> um, Does that mean the students have like, that episode? No, no, no. It's not oh, published. Okay. <laughs> I'm deleting I'm it. But I'm like, oh, you have to, got to be kidding. I'm like, the whole thing's there. Like, I can watch it, but no one else can. <laughs> and I can't download it. I can't pull just the audio. I can't do anything with it except publish it. And then it could be available for everyone <laughs> to watch. So I'm like, this is ridiculous. Oh, so dear. that's where we decided to be like, okay, well, let's let's do this one again. Yeah, give me some time to think about it too. Yeah. Uh, Good. So, what do you think about starting off with the um, the announcements, and then we'll just roll right into the episode? Sure, sounds great. Okay, go for it. Uh, welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Uh, Tia, Kirsten, and me, Chris, are here with another brand new episode. Uh, Katie is out sick today, but uh, we'll have her back soon. But before we get into the show, we wanted to make some announcements. So on Wednesday, September 23rd, the three Louisville Metro Police Department officers who murdered Brianna Taylor were sentenced by a grand jury. Officer Brett Hankinson was indicted with three counts of wanton endangerment for the stray bullets that hit Brianna Taylor's neighbor's residences. The other two officers were acquitted. The ongoing protests against racist police brutality across the country amplified that night, and a lot of people in the Black Lives Matter movement need support. We have some links in the show notes that should show up in any podcast player you're listening on right now. So we encourage our listeners to donate whatever they can to Louisville Street Medics and Louisville Bail Fund. But if you're aware of mutual aid needs in your area, definitely take care of your communities. Remember, we keep us safe. Another big event that's going on in the news or you know, in our lives uh, have been the wildfires. And so the fires are still going on. Some of them are only about 30% contained. Others have recently become more contained, but tens of thousands of homes have burned. Over a million acres of land just in Oregon has burned. And we're facing a rapidly rising death toll in what our governor has called the worst wildfire disaster in Oregon's history. So there's a lot of urgent need for help there as well. And it's really hard to know where to start. So the feds, the state, and local governments have offered 
really too little too late for a lot of folks. And people have been stepping in to volunteer their spare time and whatever materials they can to organizing and distributing supplies for the people who have evacuated. Um, so if you're aware of any mutual aid drives in your communities, um, you know, give what you can, if it's, you know, your time or resources um, to giving clothing and hygiene items to people displaced by the fires. Um, there's also currently a fundraising and supply drive for the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, which is a large Native American community that's taken hit after hit this year, and they could really use some help. So check out the work that Don't Shoot PDX did with Fires Igniting the Spirit, and that's also linked in the show notes below. Um, speaking of fires and tribes, frequent guest of Go Dig a Hole and women in archaeology, Cassie Rippey, who is the tribal historic preservation officer for the Coquille tribe, uh, did a featured article in Atlas Obscura for her work protecting archaeological sites during wildfires. So that link is also in the show notes. It was a really interesting read, um, and it kind of goes... Um, a little bit outside the conversations that Cassie has had on Go Dig a Hole and women in archaeology. Um, Kirsten, you have a new episode of Women in Archaeology out recently, right? With uh, yes. Emily's work on fires? Yes, yeah. And some of it is, is we were wanting to get a fire archaeologist out, but it was uh, we recorded it in the middle of the fire week when everyone who is currently qualified and working on wildfires was out on the front line. So uh, Emily shared graciously shared her experience working on uh, fires with uh, various uh, agencies across the West, um, from California to Colorado, and uh, how to get involved if that's something that you're interested in in archaeology and sort of how that works and how she ended up stepping into that role awesome very yeah. cool so it's pretty fun so yeah today's episode uh we wanted to follow up on our previous new episode episode 73 um where the city of portland released a proposed draft for a citywide historic resources code. So this, um, no, 73 was when we talked about the NIMBYs who were trying to alter uh, <laughs> the historic district status or something like that uh, in Eastmoreland. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a mess. <laughs> yeah, the um, whole, yeah, trying to. Dividing yeah. your lot into 5,000 parcels so that you can up your vote on you know, oh, yeah. how it's managed. So many, yeah, just the, the interactions between um, the SHPO, uh, the National Park Service, and the different legalities that go into not only property or uh, historic preservation, but also property law and how they entangle, which was a total, in my mind, shit show, but no. <laughs> um, it is what it is, and it's kind of hard to untangle it and go for something that's ideal or how people would expect it to run. And that's where um, a lot of that conversation, as I recall, turned toward looking at a local um, historic preservation programs and seeing how that interacts with people's everyday lives. So we're here um, at... at talking about the the portland the new portland uh uh changes 
Yeah. So this document um, is put out by the Portland Bureau of Planning and Sustainability. Uh, and it's called the Historic Resources Code Proposed Draft. And Kirsten brought this up to us. Um, it's like a 350-page, incredibly dense um, thing, block of text with some pictures and diagrams um, that mentions archaeology, I think, what was it, once? I believe so. Or it, it was <laughs> On like, like the it, fifth or sixth page or something. <laughs> there's yeah, there's I think five mentions, but they are most of them are the same sentence used in different parts of the document. Yeah. <laughs> um, referring to the one paragraph. <laughs> so it's it's it has the idea of incorporating archaeology as a historic resource but none or very little, I should say, of the rules that they're talking about, the proposals actually incorporate archeology span in a meaningful way beyond what's already established, which I don't necessarily know at all that is. So Yeah, so it's also a little, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't really have a background in um, historic architecture um, mm -hmm. or, you know, like mm -hmm. historic districts and stuff like that, historic preservation. Uh, and, and so this, like, it took a lot for me to even process anything out of this. Um, and our conversation that we had last time, um, when, when we took a, a trial run on this podcast, episode, <laughs> <laughs> helped me yes. understand a lot of that. And in terms of how, what the city of Portland's Bureau of Planning and Sustainability is proposing with this, um, how they plan for that to interact with the national register. Um, and so that's interesting, but I think for our listeners who maybe, you know, are in Portland and not aware of it, or just, you know, not in Portland, um, there's kind of, there's like a, a regulatory and a social context in recent years that is informing this historic resources code proposed draft. So in 2015, the city's Bureau of Planning and Sustainability released a document um, that was called, I can't remember what it was called. I'll find the link later and put it in the show notes, but um, it, it was a mandate for density within the urban growth boundary. And so what that did is it, um, re it restructured zoning codes for different sized residential lots. And so prior to 2015, uh, an R5 zoned lot could have an ADU or uh, I forget what Additional it's called. Additional dwelling unit. Additional dwelling unit. So that's mm -hmm. like a mother-in-law or like a, an apartment or, you know, like a guest house, a tiny house in your, in your back <laughs> lot, stuff like that. Um, but an R2.5 lot couldn't have that. And so the zoning change made it so that R2.5 lots could have ADUs. Mm -hmm. um, and so the city of Portland um, also has... Uh, restricted their urban growth boundary. And so it forces density in residential development 
to happen. And because of those factors, you have um, a lot of development happening to try and accommodate growth within the urban core. And so that takes shape in a variety of ways. And so one of the ways is demolishing older um, homes so that uh, like mid-rise condo units can go in or apartment units can go in. Um, and it has also had probably not very good um, like uh, side effects in terms of its impact to gentrification, um, yeah. affordability of rent, mm -hmm. um, how, the houselessness crisis, stuff like that. And so here we are now in a pandemic that has precipitated or at least aggravated an economic crisis that was, you know, kind of underlying it all along. Um, and even though evictions have been formally suspended, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department is still evicting people. And there's a, there's like a social justice uh, lawyer named Alan Kessler here in town um, who's been very active on Twitter, um, alerting people to when Multnomah County Sheriff's Department is evicting people and they, they call for uh, people to show up and intervene peacefully. Um, but it really just takes a lot of people looking out for it and <laughs> letting the cops know what they should know already, you know, that they're mm -hmm. just playing coy to that, um, you know, you cannot evict someone right now because there's an eviction moratorium. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. And so, you know, other tenants' rights organizations have been calling for things uh, ranging from uh, suspending rent and mortgage to, um, you know, seizing vacant properties. And, you know, we have tens of thousands of um, unhoused people in Portland. And uh, as of, I think it was 2018, there was a study that showed that there were 16,000 vacant um, rental properties, um, <laughs> that are just sitting vacant. So, um, you know, we can keep building, <laughs> but there are certain problems in the way these laws are structured that are aggravating the houselessness crisis and aggravating the affordability of living in the city. Um, and so that's kind of the, that's one of the, like my big questions for what the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability hopes to get out of this historic resources code. Yeah, it's really interesting to see uh, with all of those things in mind, kind of how and why they're tweaking the code. Um, so a couple of other little things is uh, contextually, Oregon as a state has very weak uh, rental or renters protections. Um, it's very landlord friendly um, is one thing to keep in mind. It's very different from uh, the state south of us or places like New York City or Chicago where there's more renters protections. That is not the case here. Um, gentrification is fairly rampant in the city uh, and there isn't a whole lot to keep people from being evicted uh, for no cause. And that's where during the pandemic, there was some attempt to get that frozen, but that hasn't really been in 
the enforcement and the creation of the policies have not matched, um, which is problematic. But taking a look at some of the changes that are going on, it's kind of, uh, how should I say, all over the board. Um, some of the stuff that's specific to the way that the ADU laws are changing um, is that they're looking at how the protections for historic properties apply to a property. So instead of all of the buildings on a lot that is designated as historic, it protects the main home, but doesn't necessarily protect like the carriage house or a older ADU. The addition of an ADU does not uh, retract or detract from the historic uh, qualities of the house, which in the older code it would have. So that's to try and encourage people to still continue to build um, accessory dwelling units or, um, you know, additional, if there's space enough to put another, um, like a duplex, an add-on or splitting, you know, a, a historic house into two houses or restoring what had been previously a duplex or a triplex back into that, because there are several older homes here in town that were such things. So are they, correct me if I'm wrong, but so mm -hmm. they're saying that in this code that mm -hmm. the main house is what conveys the yeah. historic nature, but that like a carriage house or something doesn't, it seems like they are completely ignoring the fact that like, we spend a lot of time telling you what are contributing <laughs> elements to the historic nature of that yes. house and that it's boiling it down to the simple fact of like, well, the house is the main property. When in fact, like, and it, this is just an example. I don't know if this would even be a case, but like, this is the first house in Portland to actually have a carriage house. Yeah. It's so like you destroying and getting rid of that carriage house to add an ADU or like build a nice something else. Like you just potentially wrecked the whole reason why that house was eligible in the first place. Yes. So that seems like a massive oversight by There's, their, yeah, which I'm that, assuming is one of many, but. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that is a really good point that you bring on, uh, bring up and touch on because that is really the key part of where I feel like there is so much oversight is the recording, the, the pieces that are actually contributing items or contributing parts of a property um, are recorded in, you know, the, the recommendation and everything. And this code feels like it very much glosses over the requirement to look at what it is that's a contributing piece or how, how things mm -hmm. contribute. Um, so the next big thing that they're doing is they are reorganizing the protections priorities and how much protections a, a property has. So as it is right now, and this is pre the proposed changes, um, you have a national, let's see, hold on. National register properties having as having the most protections. Okay. Um, you have, 
see if I can find the diagram real quick. Oh yeah, that yeah, I remember. They have a diagram in that link that I dropped in the Zoom. Yeah, that's what um, I'm looking at. Without having to go into the the bigger document, that's kind of like a summary of the two documents. Yeah, it is, and it's a good one. Um, so yes, on the in the on the website mm -hmm. or the web page, so that highest protections occur currently with a national register listed property um, as a landmark or district. The next rank down are historic landmarks and districts that are city designated. So it doesn't go through the process of the National Register through the National Park Service and going through the State Historic Preservation Office screening. Um, it's just through the city, which the city, to my understanding, and this may be limited, and if anyone on here knows better, please, please contact me because this is something I've been trying to root out for a while. And as just like Chris, historic preservation isn't my bread and butter, but it is a side passion of mine that I follow, try to follow closely, um, having previously come from a real estate background. So uh, that in mind, the city designated ones are the, the second rung down. The third are conservation landmarks and districts, and which are not well defined in this current, the way that it's currently set up. And the lower two ranks are historic resources inventory. So these are properties that are recognized as being potentially or as being historic um, and having potential for being listed, but haven't been. And there's, they have a ranking system going and as well as unranked resources, which are probably contributing, but they haven't been researched and tabulated and everything. So the changes that they're wanting to make to these protections is reordering those priorities. So instead of national register listed properties being the highest protected, it actually gets shuffled down to the third highest protected. So the top would be the city designated historic landmarks and districts. And then the conservation districts, which would be the next down. And in the new uh, regulations, those are defined as not necessarily citywide of citywide importance, but of neighborhood and community importance, which is, I think, a step up. That's pretty cool that they're recognizing um, the smaller uh, local level uh, importance, especially when you get to um, the different neighborhoods around town and trying to keep the feel of those intact. And then the third is the National Register Landmarks and Districts. So they're basically dropping the priority on that. And then those ranked resources that I mentioned before, which were just kind of, these are potentially a thing and we have a ranking system for them and different protections for each rank or whatever at the bottom, those are all pooled together as just quote unquote significant resources. So the challenge with this re-ranking, which in some respects I don't disagree with, it is how the protections are applied to this change in ranking um, because it basically makes it so that national register properties, and this is based off of my interpretation of how I'm reading these documents, is that 
they no longer have the same level of protections as they had previously, meaning it feels like there's no reason to go through the national register process. The highest protections are going to be through the city, which are approved by the same people who approve the permitting process in the development chapter of the city government. So the way I interpreted it was, because I completely hear what you're saying, was that because National Register listed sites have protections outside of city coding, like they are <laughs> protected on another level. And so what I interpreted it as is that they're dropping it lower because it already has certain protections given to it because it's on the register so that the city itself doesn't need to spend so much time like designating mm. for them that instead they're like, okay, well, these historic landmarks that are city designated and are local, like those can be given more because they don't have that national le level of like being on the register or like having the shipo fully involved. Mm -hmm. That's how I interpreted it. I could be totally wrong, but no, I, I also, go ahead. Just this kind of, this kind of bothers me. Like no matter how they rank this, like, it's still less protections to those sites that are recorded and could be eligible that they're like, oh, it's lowest, which goes against Oregon state law. Like if you Thank are you. De you determined to potentially be eligible, you are afforded the same protections as a site that is determined eligible. And this right. to me completely goes beyond that and be like, oh, they're less protection. Like, no, 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 no. Those in and of itself, by the process by the Oregon State SHPO and the law of the state is that that should be afforded the same thing. And this ranking thing to me is just like, if it's already a landmark <clears throat> and a historic district, it is already afforded protections. You should be having a separate ranking system for those sites that haven't been designated. You should be going after those ones first and protecting them because you already have shit that's designated. Like this <laughs> yes. just to me seems like a fancy way of being like, look, we're protecting stuff. I'm like, yeah, bitch, of course you're protecting it. You already have it written down. Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe yeah. I'm, but I, I could be misinterpreting. You could be like, Tia, sit down, <laughs> sit down. But I just, yeah. I hate this. I hate this ranking system. <laughs> yes. No, I, I, I totally agree. So there's, and this is where it gets kind of fuzzy because apparently something that recently passed at the state level in like 2017 is that things, what was this? I had it down the last last time we recorded this. I don't know if you can, if you remember any of this, Chris, because I've not been able to find it since I jumped back on here, but the National Register listed properties don't necessarily have the same protections that they have had mm. on a state level, or like the enforcement of that isn't the same as it used to be. Um, the city doesn't necessarily have to recognize or in it, they have to recognize it, but they don't have to enforce the same level as other polities would. So they can say like, okay, yes, it's historic. Great. You can still knock the wall down or demolish it. That's fine. Um, versus it, it, it's fewer things that they have to jump through to do the demolition um, is something that had cleared 
and I talked at length about the demolitions the last time I recall, but um, I'll have to go back and review that. I think uh, one of the things that you mentioned last time when we were talking about demolition was comparing it to the city of Oakland. Um, probably, I don't recall. <laughs> I can't see. remember exactly how you phrased it, but it was the, the proposed code seems like they, the city of Portland is borrowing heavily from how, um, Bay area has handled their mm. development and historic resources where first and foremost, the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability is responsible for approving or rejecting the development projects that they yeah. were overseeing anyhow. And so it puts it into almost like a conflict of interest where that's right. it becomes yeah. a rubber stamp kind of process where it's like, oh, of course we want to oversee planning and, and development. Yes. Why would we put the brakes on this? Um, and then also... Uh, I don't, I don't, this is like glossing over it, like really roughshod, but um, I don't see how, how this addresses livability. No, and it doesn't. And that's the, the closest thing that it comes to addressing livability is that it keeps intact properties or three theoretically keeps intact properties that are listed as important um, in the conservation district level. So the conservation district level would be looking at the local uh, potentially um, uh, like the, the more diverse uh, lower income areas that may not have had the ability to make nominations. And that was one of the big changes that I liked about this is that instead of relying on owner nominations, for the owners to be like, hey, I want to nominate my house or I don't want to nominate my house. Um, they, this allows the conservation district to be able to be nominated by the community that it's in, um, not the owners. And that it does afford some protections on that level better than the national uh, register properties on a city level. Gotcha. So there's some of the complications, I think, uh, to my understanding, Atia, although I think you have more uh, experience in actually applying the city and <laughs> uh, state level law than I do, but um, the, like the state level law applies to some extent on private property, but it mostly applies to state own state property. Is that right? I thought that the, I think it's on private land too, because okay. it's one of the most progressive yeah. laws that it protects it on private. If you, the site on your private land is determined eligible or potentially eligible, it's yes. given the same protections. If it's recognized as potentially eligible on the national register, but if people aren't recognizing it on that level and only recognizing it at the city level, would it still then be recognized as potentially eligible on the national level. So that's, that's the, a, yeah, that's, that's a thing a that's the question. Cause are they, cause that's then that goes into people like, 
are they only developing the criteria based off what the city says, or are mm-hmm. they basing its eligibility off of the national register criteria, which includes like city significance as opposed to national level significance. So yeah. I think that that could easily be a way that people would get around things with that mm-hmm. lower level as being like, Oh, well, it's determined eligible, but only on a, like a, on the city criteria, not the national register criteria, which also makes me think of like just many questions like what are is it the city sending out city archaeologists like mono like employed by this i I was like i didn't think there was (laughs) but i was like is that what they're sending and then i was like well then who is also is it just this bureau that's reviewing these because i'm really sorry i do not approve of just city politicians reading a historic document and going yes no keep it don't like there needs to be an archaeologist on staff reviewing and agreeing that these property like this just seems like this honestly has a lot of the feeling of like oh look i'm doing a really good job when in actuality it's like i'm not doing a good job at all (laughs) (laughs) and like to to my knowledge to my knowledge that i've seen over the years and this may be incorrect but i don't think it is the there is only one firm that does urban archaeology in portland that i've seen yeah i don't hear about it starts with an a (laughs) (laughs) i think i think i've heard i think another company does like occasional stuff but not anything on the scale of what the other one does yeah yeah well also Which, like to my knowledge there's not a city specific cultural resources code there's a county specific no. cultural resources code that basically just says we echo section 106 and uh you know the oregon revised statutes that apply statewide yeah which I, has protections on private land but it very much feels like this document just kind of throws all of that out the window because it doesn't talk about archaeology as a historic resource at all yeah Yeah, and it's also um correct me if i'm wrong i might have forgotten what i was going to say Um, (laughs) you're wrong no you're wrong (laughs) nope that scans Uh, oh um Yep. Nope. It's gone. I had a question for you, Chris, that I was like, wait a minute. And then I forgot it. So never mind. Yeah. Um, but also what, going back to what Chris said earlier, like this doesn't seem to address livability mm-hmm. and that it seems like what they were trying to do is keep historic properties to then be used as housing instead of tearing stuff down and building high rise apartments that are someone told me that they are like majority empty, which is like mostly because they build these apartments to like help with living. And then they charge $1,600 a month for a 400 square foot studio, which is like, no, the reason why we can't like people are having a hard time is they can't afford it. But -hmm. from what I have seen and Robert and I looked at living in a gorgeous national register building, the rent was insane for the part of town that it was in. And Robert and I were like, like, yeah, this is gorgeous. This is a beautiful property. But like, 
there is no way that we can afford this. So this, I, because then they're, what I just envision is they're going to take these historic buildings, turn them into apartments, and then part of the cool reason for living there and the cost of the place is yeah. because it's a historic building. Yeah. And that doesn't solve anything. Like you're not changing an issue. You're just putting a weird, like colorful Band-Aid on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also, so like farther down on that, um, the webpage for the historic resources code, it outlines the project values and the project themes. And I guess we should, we should outline these mm. for anybody mm -hmm. listening, but I also Let's like, into it. I don't really see how it's addressing these. Um, so uh, for the project values, they state um, the historic resources code project zoning code proposals uphold and advance the following value statements. Meaningful and tangible connections to the past enhance the lived experiences of current and future community members. I'd say I think we can all agree that's you know so something we agree with. Uh, yeah. Extending the useful life of existing buildings retains embodied carbon and reduces landfill waste. Also yes. true. Um, historic resources provide opportunities to acknowledge, address, and reverse past harms. Interesting. There's potential there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's a generous. Provides uh, opportunities. Yes. That's yeah. It also provides opportunities to continue doing to the exploitation. Yeah. Exactly. Without totally dismantling the institutions that caused past harms. Yes. I don't see how we're changing that. <laughs> um, so, okay, the next one is the broad community should be engaged in the identification and designation of historic resources with underrepresented histories prioritized for protection. I agree with that. However, it should also state, and we should listen to broad community members who yes. bring up underrepresented histories. Because yes. I feel like so often those underrepresented communities are like, hey, we'd really like to protect this. And the state's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> or yes, you're engaged. That doesn't mean we have to agree or listen. And that's mm -hmm. the thing with like, even in the 106 process, like the whole consultation bit is you have to consider, quote unquote. <clears throat> and you can, there's good faith and bad faith. And there are ways to tell, but there's a lot of really like, shifty non-listening things especially on a nationwide level that we've seen in recent years that it's like no that's you didn't actually consider you said you invited them to the table said mm -hmm, uh-huh and then moved on with what you were planning on doing without actually yeah listening yeah. to that community and that's mm -hmm. where that's the it's hard to have teeth on that but it is yeah. something that needs to have something yeah. Yes. Often what I've seen the way that the city of Portland handles their um, outreach to communities is a postcard that goes out in the mail that says there's a public comment period mm -hmm. uh, that will be open, you know, from such and such range and there will be a public hearing. And I can't tell you how many times I've received a postcard that tells me that the public hearing will be in a day or two or the very day that I received the postcard. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not going to work for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I can't just drop everything. I'm, I mean, I would, if it was like bulldozing my own house or, you know, 
something mm-hmm. egregious, but I think for most people, it's it's like you just kind of take it as like, it'd be great if I could have some say, but this really doesn't offer me a realistic chance to have any say. Yeah, and it completely ignores like going off of what you just said, like that so many people don't have the ability to just leave work or leave to go to a public hearing, like or find childcare. Yeah, and it I think it's great to like the broad community should be engaged. Absolutely. Always the broad community should be engaged, but relying on having the broad community in the identification and designation, like relying on that, that's an easy way to sneak past it because yeah, yeah people don't, a lot of people don't have time and a lot of people like to get something designated as a historic research, the amount of research that has to go into that property, all that mm-hmm. stuff, like we love it. But like, if I asked like Robert to do it, he'd be like, what, why? No, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Like, I, I know that's important, but I, I've got other stuff to know. Yeah. yeah. Like it's important to me, but I don't know, how, like that's not in my skill set or yeah. toolbox. Yeah. yeah. And the, des- like the desire is there in the, like, yeah, of course it should be protected, but like, I don't desire to like spend all that time doing all that work for nothing. I, I just, I see that as potent, like, it's great that they're saying it, but as you said, Kirsten, that there's, it's hard to have teeth, but I also feel like it's a double edged sort of thing that it's like, look, we're yeah. saying this really great thing, but it's also a way for us to kind of, weasel our way out of it i think you hit hit the nail right on the head tia that placing the responsibility of public comment on the community offloads the burden of that responsibility onto the community to provide the information that you know they shouldn't have to be expected to provide yeah yeah and i feel like so often communities have already been stating that they want to protect things and they have been deeply ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not in the public hearing (laughs) proper. You just write a letter. And And it doesn't come up in the neighborhood association meetings. Um, Most of the time, sometimes it does. Um, But, you know, most of the time I don't hear about things, you know, our neighborhood association up here sends newsletters out, uh, you know, once a month. And I don't hear about projects that you know pbot or odot or the yeah. depart the bureau of planning and sustainability are doing mm-hmm. um yeah well the last project value is historic places must continually evolve to meet the changing needs of portlanders that's another one that could really go kind of any direction uh, you want to mm-hmm. interpret it in terms yeah. of what continual evolution is defined as yeah. And, and who's who's interpreting that? If it's the right. Bureau of Planning and like Development, no, no, we're not. Gonna <laughs> yeah. That Sorry should... if anybody who works for that bureau is listening to this. Like, you know. Yes. But we would. And I, that's I think where... we're rightfully bashing this. Hashtag yes. sorry, not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those situations of like this is something we find important, and I'm glad that something's being done because it came up across my email as something that I'm like, oh, that something's happening in the historic, you know, the preservation situation in the city. Because as much as being an archaeologist and being familiar with the historic preservation laws at a state, local, and uh, depending on the county, county level, like 
I have not hardly ever rarely seen anything at the city level and living here and being like passionate about it and having worked for several, you know, uh, firms, I just, I don't understand why it's so hard, especially if you're wanting to get the communities engaged. A professional should be able to easily access this. And maybe yeah. that speaks to my internet research savviness. I don't know, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it just feels like it should be it should be easier, and it shouldn't be buried in the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability website. Like, I just I'm going over their main website, and it's there's the residential infill project, which is what you referenced earlier. Uh huh. And the Historic Resources Code Project, there's Shelter to Housing Continuum projects and like, you know, other programs, but those are the big projects. But nowhere can I see just like how, you know, how to find uh, historic um, documents for putting something on the historic uh, city registry. Like, where is that? <laughs> yeah how how is this so hard to find because it shouldn't be yeah and like tia said tia, like you said tia who's doing it <laughs> <laughs> who are you right <laughs> and because... how does this interface with the county clerk too you know like yeah how this reflects on property deeds yeah and mm -hmm. stuff like that yeah. I, yeah. It's just not accessible. It's, it's, it almost seems deliberately obtuse. And, you know, I guess back to my, my comment I made just a little bit ago about bashing this. I, I think that part of being civically engaged, no matter where you live, requires you to be critical of mm -hmm. basically what we're doing right now is, is pouring through just an impossibly dense, not user friendly at all block yeah. of text. And just say, you know, like, what on earth is this? What does it mean to me, a person who lives here? And what does it mean to people who are more vulnerable than me living here? Um, looking through the uh, project themes, they have five themes. Um, identification, designation, and protection. I think that's a lot of what we've been discussing so far. Um and then the fourth is reuse, and the fifth is administration. Just the way they word these things seems very like the intended audience is for developers. Um, totally. And so for reuse, it says the ability to adaptively reuse existing buildings is generally limited to the uses allowed by the base zone applied to the site. For historic resources, especially those built before the application of modern zoning, allowing greater use flexibility expands economic opportunities to justify complex and costly rehabilitation projects. Code proposals would exempt all designated landmarks and districts from parking requirements, which is kind of a good thing. And for certain mm -hmm. designated historic resources, increase opportunities to add housing units through internal conversions reduce requirements for transferring unused floor area and provide a suite of options for establishing new residential and non-residential uses not otherwise allowed by the zoning code. So I feel 
sorry, sorry go, ahead. go ahead um i just i feel like reading this like just looking at the one like granted it was one place but the one place that robert and i looked at it it already did all that right like, this doesn't seem very yeah. new to me this right. seems like this is already like it didn't have any parking <laughs> it didn't have any like <laughs> It just seems yeah. kind of like, like, uh, granted, I agree with a lot. Like, I think this one is really good as opposed to like <clears throat> the first one, which was identification, which reading that those two couple sentences was like, huh? Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. It just, I don't know. I'm, I'm what you said, Chris kind of like struck me. Like, it seems very like, like zoning and construction based language. And I'm wondering, did they have a historical resource specialist professional who was involved in this creating this i would like to hope they have but i don't i don't see like a lot of this seems like an archaeologist of a professional level or a historian of a professional level should have caught a lot of what they've yeah. said thus far yeah and so far um <laughs> Looking at uh, the document itself at the beginning, it has acknowledgments. Um, and none of the acknowledgments include, um, well, there is the Portland Historic Landmarks Commission, which I want to look those people up. <laughs> there's a list of names but otherwise it's bureau of development services bureau of planning and sustainability portland planning and sustainability commission commission and then the city council that's it Oy like day. there there's a short list of one two three four five six seven people on the historic landmarks commission and i can tell you right now there's not an archaeologist on that because i to my, I know a lot of archaeologists <laughs> in the city. I don't know all of them, so I could be totally wrong. And maybe there is a hidden archaeologist in this list, but that is, that's what I'm seeing. <laughs> so. Hey, there's a public hearing scheduled for October 27th, yes. 2020 at 5 p.m., all interested parties are invited and encouraged to testify on the code proposals, including tenants, owners, professionals, advocates, and interested persons. We should let AOA know. Yeah. Our association of Oregon archaeologists and invite all the Portland people, Portland people to, uh, and firms to, to put in their two cents on this. Yeah. Um, Cause I know there are historics folks that are going to want to see some of this if they aren't already familiar with it, which I'm sure they are, but, um, oh, hold on. Spam. Spam. I haven't played Animal Crossing, but it kind of, your ringtone kind of sounds like what I would expect <laughs> from Animal Crossing. It's like kind of like very peaceful Nintendo music. Like there's no yes. way you could possibly get angry at that game. <laughs> <laughs> so the... All right, I looked it up. The uh, Portland Historic Landmarks Commission is in the Development Services Department of the city. Um, okay. They have an agenda, and I'll, I'll send you the link here. Copy. <laughs> um, 
Um, so a guide to the historic resource review process. That it, there is a document in there, as well as a guide for presenting testimony. So if you do not find this, that might be problematic. If you're wanting to provide testimony, um, and they're about the Landmarks Commission, um, but they do have an agenda. So let's let's see what's on their agenda. So this is potentially the only professional input that occurred with this development according to their documents and their acknowledgements. I, they may have had someone else that they're not acknowledging that's totally possible, um, but that seems unlikely. So I just found their current members. They have one architectural historian, one historian, a preservation architect, two architects, and two public at large. And I might have heard of one of them. Okay. But no one involved in the underground? No, no, not at application. all. Which... So, and I can see people, you know, might think, well, you know, this is all just being clarified for the purposes of development and preserving above ground resources. That might be fine and dandy if you never dug to construct <laughs> something <laughs> mm -hmm. like an additional dwelling unit. If you're trying to encourage development in someone's backyard and the last time it was dug up outside of landscaping or anything deeper than landscaping, um, was the construction infill, if that occurred, or leveling, if that occurred 100 years ago? There's stuff under there because this was a densely populated area at contact. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no, you know, it's, 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 it's just, it, it really needs to be considered. And because Oregon does protect resources on private land there needs to be a way for people and even developers to be like oh, i've found a thing and yeah. someone needs mm -hmm. to do a thing about it um there's no like these are the firms in the area i mean we have so many firms in this city mm -hmm. there really yeah. needs to be more like um they need to be out there a little bit easier. And I, I think like Google would probably do a much better job at finding archeological firms that would be happy to help a contractor than the documents that the city is providing. Um, yeah. But it also doesn't remind them or tell them or inform them at all that in the state of Oregon, private property still falls under archeological protections, which is different than a lot of other states. Yeah. And the way that it falls under protections for private property, kind of to what you're saying about the the timing of the urban development in Portland um, and really other cities in Oregon, you know, the way that the the state regulations around protecting a site on private property are structured is if there is a site already recorded, then you cannot knowingly disturb that mm. site. But that 
requires the site to have been previously recorded. And so when you have areas that are, um, you know, like incredibly high probability, that's kind of, that's kind of where it's tricky, you know, is like, is yeah. where do you get the opportunity to speak there? Um, where do you get the opportunity to have the state historic preservation office intervene on yeah. submitting the building plans, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I've seen the city of Camas, Washington, um, and all of Clark County, in fact, has an interesting process called an archaeological predetermination, mm -hmm. where that's kind of a, a step in that process where you, if you are a private landowner and you want to do some kind of undertaking to your land, whether it's alter a building or construct an ADU, something like that, you have to hire an archaeologist to come out and uh, either dig shovel tests, um, document the historic architecture of the property, um, and then also submit that data back to um, DAP, um, mm -hmm. uh, the Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation for Washington. Um, and that then informs the probability model of, you know, the probability of having an archaeological site. So the more data points you get, the more accurate your probability model can be. I think that's kind of a, a cool thing that I, I mm -hmm. think at the bare minimum that should be implemented in Portland. Um, yeah. Well, and like you're saying that the way that archaeology is protected on private property in the state is pretty like already known yeah sites for this document that they're proposing the protections would only apply to those already listed right. not those uh resources that um significant resources the the very bottom rung is not really protected hardly at all mm -hmm. i mean that's they're kind of like cool it's old yeah go for it and um is it portland infamous for finding tons of stuff subsurface and not doing really much about it i'm not i don't know i haven't i can see I that no idea. but i I've, i haven't heard those stories because yeah. i know that there was one in sure, on hawthorne that they didn't consult anybody were doing subsurface and then they ended up hitting the old like cobblestone and the tracks for the tram that used oh, to go through there shit. no way and they, that, yeah. they were like oh crap we found this <laughs> and tipton in particular was like yeah duh if you had asked any archaeologist we would have yeah. told you yeah that, that was there and yeah. that the only reason they stopped is because like the community started to notice and get really upset, like, stop, stop, stop. What are you doing? But it's just it. And I'm assuming a lot of big cities are, are similar. You know, they have a lot of things that they're juggling <laughs> and um, a lot of things that they're juggling and trying to get done. And I understand that for sure. But just speaking as an, an archeologist, like, they're, mm -hmm. they're notorious for just blowing through stuff. Like there's so many, like there was stuff at PSU that they identified so many privies in building a new building. Oh goodness. And like, luckily since PSU has like, 
an archaeology department. They were kind of like, hey, <laughs> let's do some stuff. So they did some work on it. But yeah. I've just heard that Portland is kind of notorious with that. It doesn't have very strong laws. It doesn't really protect. And as we've seen with this, it doesn't protect archaeology. And like no. historic buildings are very important, but you can't separate the fact that historic buildings frequently have subsurface deposits associated with them oh yeah by ignoring that association you're destroying even more of the record that could add to this what what they're referring to that richness that connects people to their community yes well and especially when you get into like the weird quirky bits of portland history like there were not sewer systems built in this city until like 1890 yeah you've got the uh the shanghai tunnels yeah, uh, on the to... east, the west side, and then you know, like this was something that Kirsten and I were talking about. Um, you know, the last time we had a conversation about this was, yeah, Portland is uh, environmentally and culturally very different from anything in the UK, but in terms of the density of development and continual. Um, occupation and building on building on building, um, you know, the confluence of the Willamette River and the Columbia River mm -hmm. have been a significant place for habitation for thousands and thousands of years. And it's not um, safe to assume that just because a freeway exists on top of it or a bunch of buildings exist on top of it, that everything below has been removed. You know, like there could very well be very deeply deposited cultural resources underneath Portland, mm. you know, anywhere that still has those soil levels intact. Yeah, especially yeah. as you said, since it's at the confluence of rivers, like flooding events. Yeah, like depositing, yeah <laughs> depositing, undepositing, undepositing. And it's especially in the Pacific Northwest, writing off stuff can be a dangerous game. Oh, yes. <laughs> and granted, you know, I, and again, I, under, I understand, but like just being like, there's nothing there. Like it's bitten Washington in the ass uh, a couple of times. What <laughs> was the name of the, the port where they found a submerged uh, the prehistoric village? Uh, the Graving Dock, I believe, was the, the name of the project or something like that. But it's a, a port... One of the Port Angeles? Port, yeah, I think it's Port Angeles. Yeah. Port Angeles or Port Townsend. I think it's Port Angeles. I think it's Port Angeles because PSU did a lot of the work on that yeah. site. There's there is a lot of there's like one firm that went in, screwed up. They invited another firm in to work with it. Um, the local tribes were there helping out and they ended up giving up on it because it was just costing so much money. But they yeah you know, unearthed hundreds of human remains. Yeah. Unfortunately, before they came to that conclusion. It's because someone had done 50 centimeter test fits across the site. <laughs> and that's the thing. And it's so often that like, this is the part that gets really frustrating is because like as an archaeologist, some of these deposits are to the point where like, how on earth would we hit them? Like yeah. in just archaeological excavation, like even an auger sometimes has a hard time getting to these. And if you put a shovel test right in the right spot, 
to and put an auger all the way down, you could miss stuff. So it's yeah. so often that like, and even though I told you right before this episode, Chris, that I I never want to be involved or adjacent <laughs> to monitoring ever again, <laughs> it's almost to the point where in these highly populated dense areas, it's almost like you should just just have a monitor, yeah. so they can sit there and then if something comes up, like just hey, hold up, wait a second, yeah, and you know, it, it's boring as heck, but. I'm sh- you could literally fund an entire firm just doing urban archaeology in Portland. I would oh, bet. Yeah. <laughs> I am not a monetary expert. <laughs> I would say that you could fund a whole firm. Oh, oh yeah. a puppy. Artie just ate his dinner. He's very excited. Good boy, oh, good. Artie. <laughs> He's like, I'm an archaeology pup and I ate my dinner. <laughs> <laughs> He's good at finding artifacts. <laughs> Har, 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 har. I love it. <laughs> yes. No. Yeah. I, well, at Oregon State, they found the the buried mammoth uh, in the football the, stadium. Yep. That's an okay. example of like you should not assume that just because something was constructed there, it has removed <laughs> any chance of something being underneath it. Exactly. And yeah, there's just there's so much potential. There's. <laughs> And I mean, for especially for as much as a development and, you know, who knows what's going to happen after this year. But as far as development goes, it would not hurt to put something in place um, because you learn so much. You deepen that connection as they're they're one of their little points is <laughs> to between history and the community to, to help solidify uh, the community to place, you help create those roots or you can help create those roots with archaeology, the knowledge that you bring uh, from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's just so much that is and can be done that is smaller cities in the state that do more than Portland. Um, I'm familiar with both Astoria and Salem, the city of Salem, having more urban um archaeology savvy than the city of portland and they are no more densely populated prehistorically than portland would have been yeah Mm -hmm. or historically for that matter well at one point astoria was bigger than portland but that was pretty early um so it's it's something that we really i think need to to push um and, and figure out how to help the city get on board with the rest of the state and the west of the Pacific Northwest um, on their their cultural and historic uh, preservation programs because it's they I feel like in some ways their hearts are in the right place just from looking at some of those points but they're not including and not talking to the right people which seems to be unfortunately a pattern in this city um, is they have this idea, but they're still talking within their own bubble. They're not inviting the right voices out to be heard um, and into the conversation uh, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're into archeology span and you're listening to this episode and you live somewhere that has development, be like a complete nerd and just get into 
you're building codes, figure out <laughs> which convoluted department of your city administration oversees building codes and then show up to hearings yeah. and, you know, either. Or write letters. Write letters. Yeah. Figure out who your city council members are. If you have a city council um, who, you know, figure out what their their stances are on stuff. You know, we have five city council members in Portland and I, I think they are often at odds with the mayor on a lot of things. The mayor is um, very <laughs> pro-development, pro-business, among other things that we don't really like him for here. Yeah. Um, all tear gas Ted. And <laughs> You know, we have we have members like Joanne, city council members like Joanne Hardesty, Chloe Udaly, um, who are very progressive in terms of their social justice priorities and their environmental mm -hmm. priorities. But I have not seen anything from them in terms of their um, historic preservation priorities. And you know, that's something that's just not on a lot of people's radars if that's not the world they work in. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate because it does get brought up. I feel like from the public yeah. in this town a lot, there's a lot of concern about maintaining the feel of the city and um, historic properties, not just buildings, but things like parks or um, food carts, which is a fun, interesting one. It's basically like a green space or an open space. Yeah. Um, and a lot of those just kind of play into that same, if you, it's good. I think that Portland encourages density um, over sprawl, but you have to do it right and bring in everyone at, to the table, not just the developers. And that's, that's where the challenge has been. So, and that's where I think I mentioned before, there's a lot I respect about the way that Portland has gone about their development historically um, is the anti-sprawl. And this kind of goes for much of the state of Oregon. And it's a very progressive state when it comes to land use law. Um, but with that, it is the implementation side of things and how they connect state law to local law and how those are, are put together um, was it rule five? Was that other piece for goal five? Um, goal five. There you go. Uh, on the state level that is supposed to be implemented by all localities. And mm -hmm. it's pretty much well applied around, I believe the, uh, Coos Bay area and like maybe a couple of counties, but by and large, it's, it's not those those goals aren't met um, in a lot of localities, including Portland. Though they yeah. do mention that in this document that they are trying to do better by that, but without including archaeology in the historic resources and the cultural resources in uh, the natural resources, it's they're not seeing the whole picture. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I'm interested to see how this shapes up and uh, kind of who else we could talk to. Like you had a really good idea about sharing this with 
the rest of the Association of Oregon Archaeologists. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then see what happens at the hearing on October 27th. Yes. Uh, speaking of towards the end of the month, um, there's a volunteer training for identifying human cremains in wildfires mm-hmm. that Alta Heritage Foundation is doing. Um, I can't remember where I saw it. Um, it was an email that was forwarded to me. I'll, I'll forward it to, to you too. Um, but I haven't seen much info online about it. Um, it's been kind of like yeah. through the grapevine, but it's like a volunteer training. It's, it's three days and you get a certification for working with canine forensic dogs. Mm-hmm. That's redundant, but whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the ICF is, is what I was thinking of the, Inst- the Institute for canine forensics. Um, yeah. And uh, I had jokingly talked about getting Artie and Baloo certified as forensic dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd be good at it. They thrive with tasks. Um, yes. Any yeah. dog that loves a task is pretty good at those kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Give um, me a job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It sounds like very emotionally heavy to go and I- identify human cremains and be oh, able yeah. to tell ashes from the forest from ashes from someone's house from ashes from someone yeah and you know be able to work through that but you know if that's something that uh you have the the training for or the the eagerness to go do then um the, i'm sure the information's somewhere out there yeah, yeah. awesome yeah no yep. that's that's a good i've seen that email as well i want to say it may have been AOA or Shippo um, email that got passed around, but mm-hmm. yeah, there's 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 been a couple of calls I've seen. I don't remember what the others are for for similar uh, volunteer opportunities across uh, the area. So keep your eyes peeled. Yep. And then uh, Halloween is coming up. Yes. Okay. Just a few weeks. Uh, so the most listened to episodes of our podcast so far have been the Halloween episodes, like Ooh. by a long shot. Oh, I'm sure. By like several, several hundred listens. Oh, that's uh, funny. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so oh. clearly the people like our Halloween episodes, so we should probably do another one. I don't know why this just clicked, and it, it definitely would require each of us to do a little bit oh, more yeah. like work uh-huh. but we could do our next spooky podcast about each of us find like a historic site or place like a haunted place and like give a little like since I, last time we talked about what we've experienced so we've kind of already gone over that but like find yeah. our favorite haunted historic site and like give a brief history of it what people have seen <laughs> and like i don't know kind of like a not to steal like my favorite murder sort of thing, but like my favorite historic haunted place. Yeah. My favorite HHP. <laughs> Let's do it. I, I dig it. I was thinking about just for funsies, just driving out to uh, one of the ghost towns in Eastern Oregon, just to there go check are. it out. Yeah. There's a few of those. There, there are. I, it would also be interesting to see what historic uh, haunts there are in Portland and see if they're protected. 
Ooh, yeah. yeah, we could do like either like Oregon specific haunted places or like Pacific Northwest specific, so not too far afield from yes. where we are. But yeah. or where we're from originally, because I know Chris, you're not from Oregon originally. I'm not from Oregon originally. Yeah, I think you are Kirsten. I grew up here, yeah. And then I uh Tipton's from Washington, so we could do the haunted places from where from our from, origins either, either we could just we could figure it out but yeah uh, for sure no, that sounds like Florida's super cursed it remains cursed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're like oh we're continuously haunted by ghosts the yeah. whole state. i've been joking with uh, some of my friends the kirsten you know the really messed up fork that was recovered from the monitoring at the high school yeah it's like this gnarly mangled fork with like yeah. the tines are all like curled up. Uh, I've been joking that that thing is cursed and <laughs> that it's been charging under so many full moons since it was buried. And like the high school itself was more than likely constructed on top of a prehistoric village. And so it's just soaking in curse. And <laughs> since we have recovered this thing, um, you know, our president has gotten covid a bunch of other people have gotten COVID. Like this thing is just emanating <laughs> horrible, horrible energy. And, uh, you That's know, funny. one of these days it, it will go in a box to the museum and just sit there with its awful, awful energy, the cursed fork. <laughs> All hail the cursed fork. <laughs> <laughs> Say good morning oh, to the cursed fork. Yes. Bow to the cursed fork now. <laughs> <laughs> The day when I walked into the office, um, I like walked past the lab table and the cursed fork was sitting on the lab table and I like stopped dead in my tracks and I was like, what's it doing there? Why isn't it back on the artifact shelf? And I seriously thought for a second, I was like, this thing move? <laughs> and then I remembered on Friday afternoon, one of my friends came by to drop some stuff off for me on his way to work. And I pulled the fork out and I was just joking around with it with oh. him. And I left it on the lab table and I was like, okay, I'm not going crazy. This thing isn't cursed. I no. was just like absent-minded and, and left it sitting on the lab table. <laughs> Spooky fork. Yeah. Oh, that's silly. Oh, well, yeah. Cool. That's a good well, place to call fun. it. I think so. You can wow. tell I've had a little bit of wine in me. <laughs> a lot of thumb action going on over there. Da, 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 yeah. da, should use my hands more in talking. <laughs> on, on the podcast. Yeah. Well, we don't have like a set outro, so we can just call it there and be like, all right, everyone, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Later. Sounds great. <laughs> Peace. Check just you later. <laughs>